Hi, I'm Jacob Murray, author of The Eighth Immortal, and this is Spoiler Country. Hey, hey, people of Earth, it's time to enter the Spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick and Casey. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on SpoilerVerse.com. But if you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcaster, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us, leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at SpoilerCountry at gmail.com. Welcome back to Spook Country. I am Johnny Horsey, and today on the show, we've got Jeff sitting down with Jacob Murray from Sports Point Press talking about his new book, The Eighth Immortal. Uh, you know we love Sports Point Press. They put out a lot of great stuff, and I'm super excited to hear more about this book. So instead of hearing me rasp and talk and waste your time, let's just jump right into the interview. Listen to Jeff and Jacob in their own words. Hello, listeners of Spoiler Country. Today on the show, we have Jacob Murray. How's it going, Jacob? Going great. How are you? I'm doing very well. So how's life treating you right now? I got a pandemic dog in my lap, so pretty good. (laughs) You know, that does make life better, doesn't it? When a dog in your lap can always make any situation feel better. Depending on her mood, yes. (laughs) Hopefully it's in a good mood right now. Yeah, she's pretty chill. And that means we actually have our very first listener. (laughs) Right, ready made. Yes. Hopefully, the dog doesn't get up and walk away, and <laughs> they'll get a bad sense of uh, what the podcast's um, audience is feeling right now. <laughs> right. So, so Jacob, where does your love of comic books come from? My love of comic books is kind of came at me two pronged. Like I started reading comic. I loved the comic book store when I was a kid. I had a local shop with an owner who was a dick, but I wasn't old enough to really notice what a dick he was yet. But he sold Spawn comics, and Spawn was the first comic I really got into. You know, I mean, I think a lot of, you know, I'm 30, what the hell am I? I'm 36, so I think a lot of people my age kind of, you know, Spawn came out when we were, you know, just able to read and start demanding our parents take us places. So I I love Spawn. It was the first comic I ever collected, but it was like way over my head and (laughs) so so wordy. So I I don't think I actually really read it. And same with X-Men. I bought a lot of X-Men comics when I was a kid, but again, I just love the art. I didn't actually, I didn't actually like reading much at all until I was a teenager. But by that time I hadn't really read comics. Like I I just, you know, once I got into high school, not that I stopped being a nerd, I was still a total nerd, but I wasn't really going to the comic book store and doing that kind of thing. So I really was away from comics from, you know, my teen years up until my mid twenties. And I, for, I, can't, I can't remember exactly what it was, but at some point I went, you know what? I call myself like a geek. And I, I if someone asked me if I like comic books, I say yes. And yet I, I would say yes. And yet I don't really actually read them. So maybe I should <laughs> 
Um, (laughs) I went back and I bought a bunch of old omnibuses, starting with like, you know, John Buscema's uh, Silver Surfer was one of the first ones I bought and decided I love that character. You know, I have to read it. I bought a bunch of the old uh, X-Men omnibuses and and I was enjoying them. But, you know, and then I read and then I read Sandman for the first time when I was like 20 or something like that. Yeah. And I like I always feel like a little lame, like so, you know, as kids today would say so basic. (laughs) <laughs> that Sandman made me, you know, really fall in love with comic, but it's true. It is just the way it is. Cause it's a, it's a fucking masterpiece and how mm. could you love it? So I, it blew my mind in terms of what the median could actually do. And it stopped being just fun, goofy, nerdy stuff at that point and became like a really true artistic medium to me. And that's what made me actually want to start writing them. And then full circle made me start appreciating the artistry that goes into the, you know, more quote unquote pulpy, pulpy comics. Well, you said a lot of very cool things. Uh, the f- first off, I find it funny that when your first comic book you ever bought was Spawn, because it's one of those comic books that a parent buys for their kid because they don't, because they just assume every comic book's made for a kid and they have no idea what they're really purchasing. <laughs> yeah, not quite like the Marilyn Manson albums I made my mother buy, which she swiftly took away from me when I played. Them. <laughs> I, I, well, I was, uh, I'm actually, I'm a little older than you are, but Marilyn Manson got, I, I started listening to him got right when I started college mm-hmm. and that was, uh, yeah, it was Marilyn Manson, Spawn and Sandman for me right around the time when I was about 20 or so, which yeah. would have been around 2000. And, you know, you had Antichrist Superstar. It was right around the time of Mechanical Animals came out, which yeah. I, I know a lot of people give him crap for because it, it was away from his normal style, but it's such a good fucking album. It's such a good album. Yeah, it was that. I, I And to be honest, I think Antichrist Superstar drew me not even because of the music so much or his look or anything, but I was just such a rebellious little shit. religion, <laughs> <laughs> And uh, <laughs> and so I, I saw the cover of that and I went, I want that. Yeah. Did, did, did you ever get around to seeing Manson in concert? I did not. No, I've seen a lot of concerts, but I never saw Manson. I wouldn't call myself like a huge Marilyn Manson fan. Like, yeah. I, you know, I, I appreciated him. I listened to him when I was... You know, in my young teens, and that—that that was about it. But no, I never. I've heard he puts on a good show, though. I—I've I, only been in my entire life to, God, I think three concerts in my entire life, and one of them was Marilyn Manson in Massachusetts, Little Massachusetts. It was a good show. I mean, I kind of get disappointed. Apparently, he repeats something in every show that it comes off fake when you know it's fake. But mm. he still—he's a great concert. That was when he was doing Hollywood tours. Mm. It was so good, and but I was a huge Manson fan at the time. I had I was buying his albums. I had his like his biography. It was a, I think it's called Antichrist Superstar. It was like a biography book of his. Yeah, and of course there was a girl I knew in college who was a big fan of his. So obviously that made me a big <laughs> fan. Yeah, but, but like I said, and going back to Spawn, I was I did buy Spawn for a little while uh, back in the nineties. Do you still have his, those comic books? I still have the original run I collected. Yeah, I've got a couple a couple of copies of issue one that I bought. I didn't start with issue one. I think I started with like issue like five or six is when I first like went to the store and those are the ones that are out. And I, re- I remember like even then, like, cause you know, that was that big comic bubble. Even then they were like trying to sell issue one for 20 bucks. And so I remember saving up money so I could finally buy issue one by the time like issue like nine or 10 came out or something like that. But I ended up collecting them through 100 and oh wow! Other than missing, I think I'm—I always forget which I'm missing, and all the weird shit I bought on eBay, I've never gone back and bought these three issues that I'm missing to complete my one through one hundred run. But I do still have those ninety-seven of one hundred issues sitting in a box. Yeah, I, I think I started buying Spawn 
God, it was probably around issue 28 to 30, somewhere in that, somewhere in that time frame. I did stop, I think, as well around 101. Yeah. But I went back, I bought a few of the older issues. You know, issue nine, I was lucky enough to get 10, seven. I think I got two as well. My father owns, got the first one for me, all for himself. The funny thing is, like, Spawn, talking about Spawn, Spawn has had, is now like a serious resurgence now. It's actually kind of crazy. Yeah, I know. I, I just the other day received my uh, Kickstarter Spawn action figure. Oh, you you went for you went full full for the Kickstarter, huh? Those things, man. They they were one they took a long time. I remember the release, but I remember that Kickstarter killed it. That made it so much money. It did. I was just looking at it yesterday because I couldn't remember like what all it came with because I think it was, I think it was like 2019 or something, which sadly was a couple years ago. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, and I, I was so I was just looking. I think he made like four point million dollars on that. It's crazy. It's a cool action figure. You know, it's fun. I, you know, I'm, I'm more of a, I'm a comic collector, but I'm more of a toy collector. So I mm. jump all over this. Yeah, it, I think it's, it's pretty interesting that Spawn around issue, with issue 300, all the old comic books are now worth so much money. They're, I mean, to go on, even on eBay, they're like 15 bucks now for just random issues. It's it's amazing how it come, it came for a circle. I mean, I don't know if it's nostalgia and it's now considered retro to, you know, to get back into Spawn, but he but spawn is such a huge character i started buying him as well around issue 299 again it's good comic okay. books but i was is amazed this, just well, how popular I have no idea what i mean like i haven't read any of the issues since you know i stopped buying them at around issue 100 110 or something like that and i have no idea i mean is i, I people are still buying it obviously i just yeah I'm, i have no idea what's actually going on with it, it well in i think three months He's now the the company is now blowing up. It's now going to be Spawn Universe. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that announcement. Yeah. So if Don McFarland's listening, we're, we're writers. We like Spawn. So if you know if you need anybody, <laughs> one day, man, one day. Yeah, and like I said, I think it's cool that you talk about your love of Sandman because Sandman became it's the closest comic I think I've ever read that felt hundred percent like pure literature. I mean, it's not yeah. even debatable. It's pure literature. Yeah, it, like I said, it's a masterpiece, and it, it's it's just utilizing a different medium to tell a classic story. Yeah, and I actually there's several stories of Sandman. My day job, I'm an I'm an English teacher for for high school, and I so badly wanted to teach some of you know teach Sandman to my students because it's so layered. But unfortunately, the, the the combination of nudity and language and gore made it impossible. Unfortunately. Oh my god! I sorry. I need to stop the dog. No worries. Hey, sorry. Yeah, that's a shame. It, you know, and especially you teach high school. Yeah, you'd think high school students would freaking deal with it. I, I think I'm sure, they, I'm sure they could as well as their parents. Right, <laughs> and the administration. The, the kids would be fine. The uh, it'd be the parents and the administration who I'd hear from immediately once I tried, you know, tried to do it. That is, that's a shame, and I, it's a shame too because one of the main things I think that keeps people away from comics is isn't that they even think that they're childish or anything. I, I know a lot of people who like perfectly accept that comics is a, is a legitimate medium, but they don't have, they don't have the skill set to read it. And I've, you know, and Sandman is a hard one to start with, even though that's like the best one for people who aren't necessarily into like, you know, nerdy stuff, pulpy stuff, superheroes, like the the subject matter and the story of Sandman is something really relatable and, and I think has broad appeal, but it's a hard book to read if you've never read a, read a comic book. And I've mm. given it to a few people who don't read comic books and I get the same thing. They go, I don't know how to read it. And it's mm. just, 
you know, and I, it, it's just a thing because they didn't read them growing up. And, you know, I think you kind of almost need those pulpy books just to kind of usher you into the medium a little bit, you know, it's, it's interesting. And so I've actually, especially with my book, like a couple of friends who I've given, given the book to, they're like, I want to read your book. I just, I just don't know how Yeah, <laughs> it sounds, it sounds lame, but it's true. I mean, we take it, you know, people who read comic books, take it for granted that if you're not used to reading a combination of, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of little nuanced rules in how you read a comic book, you know, from the way captions differ from bubbles, you know, literally just, you know, the left to right flow, that's not quite always a left to right flow because sometimes it's a left down and then up and across flow and page mm. spreads. What does that mean? And all these little things just make people go, eh, I, I, you know, if you're not comfortable with it, I'll read something else. Uh, you know, I agree with you 100%. I've actually tried a few times to teach a Batman Nightfall. I was doing a, a series on epic, epic and tragic heroes. And I thought, you know, Batman Nightfall is a very interesting take on that idea because I think I had Batman as a, a tragic hero because obviously he loses at the end of Nightfall. And I yeah. tried it. Yeah, my kids didn't understand how to read the comic book. And I was shocked because, because again, I've read for so comic for so long. It just seems like to something you just know, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah and that, go ahead. Take, take it for granted. Yeah, 100%. And I actually tweeted at Neil Gaiman some, some years ago. And I tweeted at him. I was like, and I, and I can't remember my exact tweet, but something along the lines of, I would love to teach, I think it was Orpheus, the, was it the one-shot Orpheus comic book? I was like, I'd love to teach Orpheus if you could only make it a PG-13 version of it. And he mm-hmm. tweeted back to me, he goes, I have no idea what that would even look like. I was like, all right, <laughs> sorry. Well, you know, he has this, uh, and I can, I, I can understand, he has one of my favorite quotes, even though I can't remember it verbatim, and I can't find it either. I think it, it's, in, it's in American Gods, I believe, and... Or, or in a reference about and something he wrote about American gods, I like I I know the, I know the essence of the quote, but I've never been able to go back and actually find the thing so I can write mm-hmm. it down and say it word for word. But it, the gist of it is, you, the only way to tell a story is to tell the story. Mm-hmm. There's no there's no summarizing. There's no facsimile. There's no cliff notes that can make up for just actually digesting a story the way it was meant to be told because you can't take in all of everything that was put into it is there for a reason. And it's part of what you get out of it. So even I can see even something like that, like, yeah, sure. Could you hypothetically sanitize something by taking away, you know, tits and ass and, you know, changing out curse words for other words and maybe nuancing some subject matter or whatever to make an R book, a PG 13 book. Like, yeah, I guess you could, but it would be a different book. So when you're writing the, the eighth immortal, which is definitely not sanitized for, you know, children or whatnot, is that something you take to heart? Do you look when you, when you are writing for that comic, do you look at it and think, is there anything here that can be removed? Or do you look at it as it is exactly what it needs to be on every basic. Let me do like from, from either a page, a panel or an issue with, with eighth immortal, which yeah, is, is totally not for kids. I was, I was just writing back to someone else and I love Ira glasses, uh, line. This book acknowledges the existence of sex. Which <laughs> uh, is such a nice, polite way of putting it. I never wanted that stuff to be necessarily front and center. Like, uh, my my local comic book shop owner, Paul, of House of Secrets, joked at me when I gave him the book the first time. And he said, hey, nice spank book, buddy. And I went, <laughs> God damn it. Like, <laughs> I mean, he was fucking with me because he knew that would piss me off. 
But, you know, it's not like if you, if you were just to flip through it, you'll go, oh, wow, look, like that woman's naked and oh, those people are having sex. But it's there because because a it's in, it's literally functional to the story itself. So I, if I was to take it out of it, it would mean that something that's integral to the story would I just be talking about it instead of showing it. And that felt wrong. But also the whole point of the book, sorry, that bark pierces my brain. The whole point of the book is, is about connecting with kind of the, the yumminess of humanity. And that's what these immortals have lost is their ability to connect with the, the sweetness, the sourness, the, the bitterness, the joy, the, and the pleasure of being human. They're, they're desensitized. And so, you know, sex is a, you know, convenient and, you know, kind of easy way to, to highlight that. But I, like I said, I, I didn't want it to be a quote unquote spank book. I didn't want it to be something that is just about selling sex. That's why I didn't put anything like that on the covers, even though I certainly could have and announced like, Hey, that's what this book is about. Like, it's, I want it to exist in the book the way it exists in people's lives. That's something that's important and something that, that, that has a lot of weight to it. It influences a lot of our decisions. It, we, we wrap a lot of our emotional baggage into sex, but we also don't, you know, the healthy ones among us don't define our entire lives by it, mm. but we also can't ignore it. Even if we're trying a little, even if a lot of us are skittish about it in public discourse. So I, I do want to push the aspect of it that I'm frustrated by the fact that, you know, you know, in an issue, a bunch of, ch in one of the issues, a bunch of children get murdered. And I said to, I was choking with someone that was kind of talking to me about like, you know, the, the sex part of the book would be uncomfortable for a lot of people. And I said, yeah, and I bet you those people won't bat an eye at me having massacred a bunch of children. And that, that has always inherently bothered me. It's all the, the term sex and violence always being thrown together has always bothered me. So I wanted to showcase sex in a way that is at once just it's just there you know it's not the whole fucking point of it it's not there to make you horny it it but you know it's i'm, I'm waffling on here so your question was could i just remove it <laughs> um, <laughs> no i couldn't but but i was conscious about not overdoing it i did check in with people i i want to i want to push up to that line of making people a little uncomfortable or raising an eyebrow without without losing them because, well, this is just, you know, smut. So the, the one thing about discussing things like social sex, it, that it, because that is such a personal thing, does it feel like, do you feel exposed by presenting it in as a writer into your work? Did it take you a moment to be confident with doing, adding that to your story? You know, I'm still not fully confident um, because <laughs> the answer to your question is a resounding yes. It's very, it's, it's inherently kind of uncomfortable. And that's me pushing up against my own problem with it because even I'm going, I just spent all this time walk, you know, going on about how, you know, we shouldn't be in this way. And yet I acknowledge that I am. So it's, it's, it's a thing that's kind of a challenge to myself to put it out there. I mean, I've give I've handed this book to coworkers and I'm always like, you know, a little terrified doing it. <laughs> and I got to say, like, I've been really, really happy that so far almost no one has mentioned it to me. Mm. And that makes me happy. Like the couple of people like have joked about it, you know, like I said, but, you know, but no one's gone you know, like, wow, that book's really spicy or, you know, 
I mean, maybe they're thinking it like, what the hell, Jesus Christ, you know, Jacob's a pervert or something. But again, <laughs> I didn't want that, you know, but yeah, it's, it's, I don't yeah, say, I, it's not revealing, but it is, it is, I mean, just like any writing is, you know, you're, you're exposing a piece of yourself. And so, you know, even just dipping your toe into exposing that side of yourself is, is, is a bit uncomfortable, but also, well, no, never mind. Go on. Well, I mean, it, it was also interesting that you that you make the, the comparison with the com- combination of sex and violence because I mean, and obviously, I think that's an inherently maybe American sensibility. I, I would I would imagine because yeah, like, we are oddly comfortable with violence and we're <laughs> very 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 shy about sex. Yeah. And you know, it's it's sort of like um, the news is for, like say, take the news for instance. Very happy to discuss a massacre. But, you know, any mention of sex is not going to make it to the television. You know, it's, it's a very, I wonder what, it, it says an interesting thing about the nature of our society as well, I think. Yeah, it speaks, I mean, it speaks to our values, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, like, I, I hope not. Wanted, like, you know, this, this country was founded by a bunch of people who, for whom, you know, the Catholic Church wasn't oppressive enough. Yeah. <laughs> a bunch of Puritans who went, you know what, all you all you religious people, you're, you're not doing a good enough job. We're going to go, we're going to go be even more religious somewhere else. And they had no problem with massacring the native Americans, but it was the sex that was kept behind doors. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It's all, it's all gross. And you know, yeah. So, so where did the idea for the eighth immortal come from? Uh, the very first Genesis of it was, was just a dream I had, you know, in the book, Hereupon, the main character, has this prayer, which is how she exerts her her power, her ability to unmake immortals. And the prayer goes, with my right hand a blessing, with my left a curse. And those words were spoken by this strange woman in this dream to me. And we were like, just I remember where I was in a bunker and this woman was carrying something and I didn't quite know what it was. And she wasn't really speaking to me, but I was there and she was like saying this prayer to this thing she was holding. And I just woke up like, you know, it was such a weird, mysterious dream that had like no context <laughs> to mm. any, I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, in any way go, Oh, that was, you know, this kind of thing I'm worrying about. Or yeah, I dreamt about, you know, giant shark people because <laughs> I watched shark week or any like nothing. I, I couldn't, I couldn't map it onto anything. It just, it was just one of those dreams that felt like it was talking to me. And so I just set out to kind of figure out like, you know, who that woman was. And so I started thinking about it and just those words with my right hand of blessing with my left of curse, just kept replaying in my head and replaying in my head. So I, I wrote out the rest of that from there. And that kind of just was the jumping off point for, uh, for the story. It, it's kind of funny when people who especially aren't writers and they ask the question, where does your ideas come from? And I guess the right answer is just the most random of crap. <laughs> it happens. It, it generally really is. Like I always align. I went to film school and one of my writing teachers was a big fan of Goodwill hunting. And he would talk about it a lot in class. And, you know, that one scene where Matt Damon just like takes apart that, you know, Irish dude with a ponytail in a bar. I haven't seen the movie in a long time, but I vaguely remember that scene. But it's like really intense scene and it's just really pithy and witty. And and it's like, it tells you a lot about the character, but it's also just in terms of the story, it's not necessarily neither here nor there. And it's early on, like, and I remember him saying that he thinks that that entire movie was probably written around someone thinking up that one conversation. 
And huh. then, I'm, oh, well, who the hell are those people that just had that conversation? I, and I find that that's kind of true with a lot of the, a lot of the writing that I have, either it's something a dream or just as, you know, just a way you notice something like, you know, stories don't come to you all at once. Like you tease them out. And that's, what's fun about it is you're, you're exploring the depth of your own mind and kind of unraveling these things. And I mean, that's why people talk about like, you know, muses and, you know, and people feeling like they're just, you know, conduits and whatever. And while I don't necessarily go that far, there's, there is that sense about it that, you know, these things just kind of materialize and, 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 and often in random chaotic ways. And your job is to, you know, put order to that chaos. You know, I, and I agree with you 100%. There's a, I'm a very indie comic book writer. I'm obviously not as far along as you are, but I had set up to write an, a, a new comic book myself. I'm not going to go too much into details because it's literally something that is about three days old as far as the discussion, the agreement, all that stuff to, to do it. And the idea that I originally had for it, and I was very excited about it, and what I pitched was very much flipped. And the guy said, well, I don't want that as an idea. I want this instead. Cause and, I, and he's paying the bill. So sure, whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was, I, I was up all night um, without an idea. I had no idea whatsoever. The next morning, nothing for like eight or nine hours. And I, my wife is talking to her friends, you know, at, 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 at in my front yard and I'm standing there, not really paying attention, zoning out. And the idea pops in my head that solves the problem that, that I had for, and just popped there for no reason. I'm thinking to myself, that's basically in a nutshell how ideas happen. It's just the it's just random things just click. Yeah, they're just little lightning bolts of kismet. <laughs> yeah, and I agree with you hundred percent. So with the Eighth Immortal, once you got your idea, how did you and why did you choose Source Source Point Press as being the book that it should be its home? Oh, so I sent out I sent this out to a handful of publishers like. I put together the pitch with a pitch with Alice, the Alice Lee Barnes, the artist, you know, so first I went out and I said, I needed an artist. And I went and, you know, lucked into meeting her and we put this pitch together and, you know, I was, I had no plan (laughs) other than just to, you know, send it out to a bunch of comic book publishers. And I figured if none of that works, I can just make it myself and whatever. And as I was sending it out to people, it was actually a friend of mine who was in a toy collecting group with me, Matthew. I had no idea he worked for Source Point Press. To be honest, at the time, I hadn't heard of Source Point Press. And I, I, it just came up that I was doing this. And he went, wait a minute, you write comics? And I said, yeah. And he said, you know, I work for a comic book company, right? <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> and, you know, it's just one of I So, you know, he gave me the you know, the quote unquote in, and I sent it to his, uh, to the CEO, Travis, Travis liked it and away we went, you know I mean? And it's like, that sounds really annoying in a <laughs> lot of ways, but to be honest, every good thing that's ever happened to me in my life has, has a similar kind of origin story, <laughs> just kind of tri- <laughs> tripping over my own dick into a, you know, into meeting the right person who just kind of connects you to the right place. And, you know, well, for our listeners who may not be aware of source, source point press, I will say they, I've kind of like hit has really hit the map, I guess within the last two years, and they've been growing quite steadily. And I think they've been putting out some very great work. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I really think they, I think they've been around maybe five or six years, but it took them a while. And I know, I, I know they've made a, a bigger investment because they also do. They're part of a company called Oxi that it goes beyond just comic books. They make they, they have a lot of really successful tabletop board games and. You know, they're working on some animations and some different things. And, 
So they're kind of a multifaceted media company, and but they're it's a, it's a small group of people in Michigan, mostly in Michigan, and they're all just you know passionate nerds, and they're doing the stuff that they love. And I think from everyone I've talked to there, they all kind of have the same story of like having been in other industries, you know, and going, I'm not happy, <laughs> I'm not <laughs> happy doing this. I want to be doing something I enjoy, and they all. And Travis was the you know the first one of those, and he created this company and has just gathered this small group of really intense, hardworking people who all kind of you know came from that same place of not being satisfied, just you know working for some company that didn't mean anything to them, and you know wanting to put their passions into into action. And I think that's starting to really come through with with their comic books because that's every writer I know that works for them it's the same kind of thing. Like they're just really passionate, passionate people who just want to tell stories and want to, you know, get their work out there for no other reason than, you know, they feel like they need to need to see it through, you know, and they've hit upon some, some really gem books that, you know, hopefully are really starting to, to get on the map and get on people's radars. I know the, I know the comic book stores near me are starting to become more aware of them. You know, when I first, paired up with them, you know, a year or so, a year plus ago, got almost two, I guess they, you know, I started asking around and yeah, not, not a lot of people had heard of them, but now in the last six months, as the book's been coming out, I've been talking to more retailers and, you know, more fans and readers and people and, and they're definitely more aware of them now. And for good reason. Now, uh, if I remember correctly, the book Seance, that's source point press, correct? to know? I'm not sure. I'd not. That's not one I'm familiar with. Seance. Yeah, I think it's like something they do. I, I'm. I'm. I'm gonna have to check it to be sure because this may be the. I think that's the first book that exposed me to what they were. But if I'm totally wrong, and I'm gonna apologize now, then I know what I'm talking about. But I'm pretty sure it does. I'm just not sure. So, so you had the idea originally for Eighth and Morton, and prior, as you said, to shopping it around, you come across Alice Lee Barnes. Mm-hmm. Uh, who, who's the artist? How does that partnership work? How do I mean? It, are you doing um, full script? Are you doing plot? Was there a discussion of what you wanted in the comic book and not in the comic book for from artistically? Yeah, so I'm a full script writer. I'm very I'm pretty particular. Read annoying in many ways. You know my so I I. I I come from a TV film background, so writing a full script was the only thing that made any sense to me. And to be honest, the reason I got into comic books was because when I would write movie scripts, everyone would say, don't direct on the page. And that always pissed me off because I also, besides writing, I also, you know, I work in, I primarily work in sitcom television, associate director, working my way up to director. Like I, I love that aspect of storytelling as well. And unless you're going to write and produce your own movies, which it's fun. I mean, I've done short films like that. It's, it takes a lot of money and it's, it's not something you can, I mean, you can't just make a comic book on your own, but you can make a comic book with like three or four people, right? Mm. You can't make a movie with three or four people really, unless you're just, you know, jerking around on your, your iPhone or something like that, which is totally fun and cool. So I jumped to comic books because to me, I was like, the whole point is that I get to direct on the page. And then, you know, so I've, I've disabused myself of that notion a little bit, the more I've done it and, and learned to trust artists and, you know, let go of some control and not feel like I have to like, you know, plot out every last little nuance of it and 
you know, demand that an artist do that. And also I've noticed different artists respond different ways. Some like that, some hate it. Alice, I think is a really good, is a really good fit for me because her temperament is really even keeled and she absorbs stuff without really throwing it back at you. So if mm. you, oh, if I, if I over direct her at any point, if I over script, she doesn't get overwhelmed and try and stick so intensely to that, that it all falls, falls apart because often when I do over script something, I'm missing something that only an artist would understand about how this should be put together. Even mm. if that's something as simple as I put too much action in one panel or I put too many panels on one page or whatever, you know, and part of that is just, like I said, I haven't been writing comic books for the longest time. So also I'm working through my own sensibilities of what works and what doesn't work. So she was great in that she didn't reflect that energy poorly, but also was totally willing like to change stuff around and she'd read my scripts and I'd get art back and, Oh, cool. She, she did that. That worked out really well. Okay. We need to talk about that. But then she'd throw her own shit in there because she acknowledged from the very beginning that this is her book too. And that's the way I pitched it to her at first that I wanted, I, I, as particular as I am and as verbose as I obviously am, I also thrive off, off shared creativity. And I always hope that, you know, my ideas spur other ideas. And even if I have a really specific, clear intention, it's always open to being batted around and chewed on. And I want other stuff to fill in the gaps. And sometimes other, you know, her ideas will send me off in a different direction. And when I first came to her, I had written the scripts already. I'd written five scripts when I first wanted to make this book that I wrote back in 2015, back when I didn't know what the hell I was doing. It was the first comic book I ever tried writing. And I had sent them, I had sent the scripts to Craig Kyle, who is a, at the time, well, no, he previously was a writer with Marvel. Now he's a, a, a film writer and executive producer. He just put out that, uh, just executive produced that new Pacific Rim series, which is really cool. The Black, if you haven't seen it yet on Netflix. But he also, he's the co-creator of X-23 and he had a really cool comic career and, you know, wrote a lot of X-Men animated TV and different really cool shit. And he gave me a lot of feedback and said, you know, you need to figure out how to actually write a comic book script, dude. Basically, he, he literally said, I'm not even going to talk to you about your story because we've got some problems before we even get there. <laughs> I said, hey, this is great. And he sent me a bunch of his, you know, he, he sent me a bunch of his old scripts so that I could see, you know, see at least how Marvel formatted things. And I, I rewrote the scripts again. And then I sat on them for a couple of years because I didn't know what to do with them. And then I was wandering around a smaller convention in California, Long Beach Comic Con. And I knew that I wanted to find an artist for this book, and I have, and but I had no idea what I wanted it to look like. Like I know this book has like an anime feel to it, but at the beginning, I had no idea that it was going to look like that. I had literally had no idea. I kept seeing artists, my friends kept sending me artists, and I just went, "Yeah, it's really nice art, but I don't know." And nothing, you know, not that it would be bad or wrong. It just didn't jump out at me, going, "Yes, that." Mm. And I walked by Alice's booth, and she had this one picture of a ballerina in in a tutu in like a in a lily pond and something about that just struck me as like up until that moment i had no idea what the eighth mortal looked like but i went i want to look like that mm. and so i struck up a conversation with her and 
met with her later and, you know, pitched her the story. And luckily she was open to it. I really lucked out. I mean, it's, it just kind of was one of those things that timed out well. She had time in her schedule. She had been drawing comic books that she had written and she, you know, had wanted to work with a writer. And so we just kind of embarked on this journey together that was really fresh and new for both of us in so many ways. And it's been, it's been a really rewarding rewarding relationship i hope every artist i get to work with in the future is as awesome as she is and i will say the art in the eighth immortal is brilliant the publicist of melissa from don't hide pr was nice enough to send me uh review copies of the first three issues of the eighth immortal so i got to read them all oh cool and the and what i mean not only did i like the story but the art is at least the art is absolutely brilliant and i think one of the most interesting things as well with the art that coincides with it is the coloring mm -hmm. it feels like it's very intentional coloring that that makes any sense what is being colored and not colored is is very intentional yeah um, absolutely yeah i mean for instance like denise's green eyes at the, in the very first issue it's again a very intentional addition so is that you in your directing saying what you want colored or is that the colorist or alice determining what to emphasize it's both. It's it's one of those things that just kind of evolved. Out. It first came out of necessity. You know, she traditionally in comic books only worked in black and white. Like when she made she she's she's made her own uh, comic book version of Pride and Prejudice, and that's all in black and white. You know, and for her, it's just a time thing. And also, I don't you know, I think she prefers toning and inking. And she's a manga artist. And most manga is in black and white. And I love anime and I'm not a huge manga fan. And so when I, when I decided, when we decided to work together, the one thing I thought was like, you know, there's elements of this story that definitely I see drive driving with, you know, with that manga sensibility, but I don't read manga, so I can't put out a friggin' manga having not read it. That wouldn't be right. And also I'm a, I'm a Western storyteller. I don't write quite that way, even though I appreciate it. Like I, I, I knew that this book had to appeal to a Western audience. And let's be honest, Western audiences are not really down with black and white books, as beautiful as they can be. We're, we're a sensory overload culture for the most part. You know, all the success of Walking Dead aside, like, can you name one other black and white comic book that's successful? I, I would say black and white, yes. Successful, no. Yeah, uh, right. I, I guess maybe, I don't know, Cerebus, was that black and white? I think that was, wasn't it, yeah, back in the day? Was black and white, and that's old, and that's and even that that's that's successful, but still very obscure. True, um, very true. But anyway, so and again, I wasn't so I wasn't like totally opposed to it. And she said, "Look, I'm, I usually don't work in color, and if I'm going to do this, I don't have the time to do full color either. I don't have the time the 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 time to commit to that." And totally understandable. And we talked about at first we talked about hiring colorists, and then. I literally didn't know any colorists and, you know, we were thinking maybe we would just hire one down the line, but then we started putting together the art. And the one thing I said to her was, I said, look, like it's in the script that, you know, one of the ways we tell immortals from other people is that their eyes are green. And there's this sequence in the first book where someone's eyes change from blue to green. And that's from the very beginning was how I wanted to get that little story point across and I didn't want to change it. And so I said, can we at least, you know, color the, eyes? Oh my God, Maeve, quiet. Can we at least color the eyes in? And she said, yeah, sure. No problem. And then, you know, I feel like it was her idea. She's told me it was my idea, but it, it was just 
organic that from there we went, Hey, well, what if we just like added a little wash to it? Like, can we just like heighten one panel? Like, you know, if it, if it's a matter of, you know, function and time and can we get away with doing something a little different? And, and at the very least that would satisfy my worry that people picking up, it was literally a worry that people picking up a comic book would flip through it, see black and white and then go, no, thanks. Right. Mm-hmm. And not give it a chance because is I know for a lot of people or like me that with comics, the art sells you on and the writing keeps you invested in it. Right. Like sure. as lovely as so many books are, I will buy the first issue of a book based on art alone. I will yeah. often buy the second issue of a book based on art alone. I will not buy the third and beyond based on art alone. Never. Mm. Right. Um, it just never happens that way. Is, even though there's beautiful books out there, it has to coalesce, but the art has to get me invested. Unless I'm already familiar with a writer who I know is going to give me a good story, the art is what's going to grab me and drag and and suck me in. So it was, at the time, I was working on my first comic book that I put out with a sideshow called uh, Court of the Dead, Shadows of the Underworld. And the art is there, Ivan Kuriderev, who did everything on that book. And he's just a friggin' madman, this like 120 pages or so, I think, um, fully rendered every page is a painting, every, the coloring he had, you know, he had some additional help with the colors, but most of it's him. And he ended up giving that book like themes because the book was kind of structured in that, okay, the first 30 pages are more focused on this woman, this character, then the next 30 are more focused on that character. And then the next 20 are kind of like a flashback sequence. And so he took that and he reinterpreted that of his own will uh, in color. And he kind of gave it this, like the first 30 pages are all kind of like, you know, more purples, you know, and then the next 20 are like very blue. And then the next ones are very brown. And the last ones are very green, I think it was. And it had this effect that when you flip through it, you just kind of got this sense of flow just from the color. Mm. And it was really cool. And so I, I said, maybe we can kind of get a sense of that so that when someone's flipping through it, they just get a sense of feeling from it, that it's not just looking at wondering whether the art's good or not, but that you get a vibe off it just by flipping through it. And so that was kind of the impetus for saying, okay, on the, and, and the rule that we came up with was every page has to have at least one thing colored and whether the, and, and ideally that's a story point, but if it's not a story point, then it's just something that's, you know, focused on an item, a pair of jeans, or it's the, 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 the emotional core of a page or a scene. Let's heighten that with a mood, with a mood color that kind of gets across the mood of that scene or that page. And that's where all the color washes and stuff come from. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm super happy that you are not the first person to ask me about that. And I've been asked about it a lot because it's this really cool thing that I think really makes the book unique. And it's kind of fun that it's, you know, we get to take credit for having come up with this cool thing that we just kind of fell into just, you know, the, the necess, you know, what they say necessity is the mother of all invention. And like I said, it, it was, it's a very well done series. The first, I like how the series opens with the, with the words, everything new requires something old be lost. Even if all that is lost is the absence of something new. So how does that quote to you represent the series as a whole and kind of like how did that idea help push the story so it, i'm glad I, I like that you asked that i'm and i'm glad that you didn't ask me to to define that line because i'm not sure i can <laughs> 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 but it, you know it, it's it, it's i came up with that way later 
So actually going back, like after I had give after I just Alice and I decided to do this, like I went back and rewrote the scripts from scratch for a third time. And a, a lot of that based on her art. And, and at that point, a lot of the story elements that are actually pretty crucial to it came into play at that point. And it was in that rewrite that, you know, I just, I was, I went back and forth on how to start the book for a long time. And I, I wanted something that teased a sense of scale, a sense of history, and would just kind of be your entry point gateway into the theme of the book. And so, you know, everything new requires something old be lost is just kind of this, you know, getting the word to me, it's just kind of this truism that the definition of something, something new coming into your life, even if it's just in the sense that in that moment, it replaces space that would have otherwise been occupied by something else, something has to go away for, for something new to be created. The, the, re, the reforming of matter means that, you know, when you, when you cook and you create a dish, you're losing an egg. Eggs are in the dish, but you've lost an egg because it's now something new. And, you know, that's, that's the crux of what these immortals are dealing with is when you never change, when you are this constant static thing throughout history, you know, what you, what do you lose? You lose the ability to be new again. You lose the ability to grow. We're constantly becoming new people because like quite literally our cells are replacing themselves every moment of every day. We're a new person every day we wake up. And so I wanted to play around with this idea that what happens if that goes away for people and you kind of get locked. So yeah, so that's kind of kind of where that came from. Just the, you know. And, and and you do give the series an interesting sense of time. It, you feel like a death of time while reading the story. And you create, is, am I pronouncing the word correctly? Is it Pilon? Pilon is how I pronounce it. Pilon, okay. Yeah, I'm and, not, I'm sure how i mean I, I didn't make that word up and i'm not sure exactly how it's properly pronounced to be honest i mean you you give them a sense of mythology and it's definitely a sense of kind of a un, unique mythology because you're, you're you're not borrowing directly from greek egyptian whatever mythology but you do i feel like there's a sense of them there like in, in like undercurrent of them is would that be correct or not yeah. So, you know, you, you touch upon that because I did borrow and I borrowed from, I borrowed from Mapuche culture and I did that. I was, I had, I didn't, the, the story didn't start off being about that. I didn't set out to tell, you know, a story of ancient Mapuche Indians. I came up with these characters. I came up with this general sense of this life force and this death force and of these immortals and I and I went out searching for something that kind of fit that framework because I like I like grounding things in something real in something that I like grounding fantasy in reality and I also know that I don't you know I'm not it's it's hard to come up with you know a framework of mythology that's going to be deeper than something that people have been working on and talking about and cultivating for thousands of years, which is why we keep going back to Greek mythology and, you know, Egyptian mythology and, you know, Japanese mythology and all this stuff. So I came across, I came across this Mapuche culture and I started researching and I just really was fascinated by it because I also needed something that, you know, obviously I needed something that would have been around six, 7,000 years ago, you know? And so I, I, 
was looking into, you know, what people, what cultures were around that long ago. So when I came across the Mapuches, it just, I, I, I was fascinated by their, you know, ancient little religious practices. And yeah, I can't, so the Pilon, the Pilon art religion, as I understand it, Pilon are like lesser lesser spirits they're kind of demigods of a sense you know somewhere and they're somewhere between man and god while the nagen spirits are are you know the higher life for the higher life forms the there, there's, there's an order ranking and i'm saying this all really poorly there's an order ranking to their hierarchy of spirits and so i kind of based the spirits and the magic of the eighth immortal on that hierarchy well a very interesting character in in the story, and I'm probably going to butcher her name too. Uh, Curapan. Yeah, I, I say Curapan. Curapan. Yeah, I, I had a 50, 50 chance on that. And I knew I was going to be wrong. So Curapan is an interesting character. Almost again, she's a kind of like as you said, a demi a demigod, uh, a, a pilon, and her job, her responsibility is to prevent the eighth immortal from existing. And the eighth immortals, from my understanding, in history when they have been allowed to live. Or kind of like Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great, Hitler, they're all your eighth immortals. Am I correct on that? Yeah, so more or less, like there's seven pure immortals that were the ones who essentially drank from the fountain of youth and were created. And they went around, you know, just, you know, for the for this first several hundred years, first five hundred years of their life, they were still basically human. And we're just running around, you know, leading the closest thing to human lives they were. And so that meant they were, you know, screwing around and raising families and, you know, having little mini lives after lives after lives. And in doing that, they, they mixed the blood. They, they, crossed, they crossed their immortal magic with humanity. And that spawned, you know, this, these, you know, this endless ancestry of half half immortals and that's what the peon are so you know the the conceit being that among us right now you know anyone could have that that blood somewhere in their ancestry and just like you know a gene that you know mean means you're going to have red hair or or brown hair this gene can fire or cannot fire and depending on how mixed and how intense it is will kind of dictate the level of magic that you have, but they're not pure immortals. So they don't, they're not immortal. They don't live forever, but they're this thing between human and immortal, this thing between human and God. And so that's who, when she lets one slip, when she doesn't catch one of these pilon and they're allowed to express their, you know, their power while not immortal, they are, you know, giants among, among humanity. They are, you know, the, the great leaders of the world and the great monsters of the world. And so, you know, the idea being that if just, if just that, when it's not even a pure immortal can do as much damage and have as much influence as Hitler or Genghis Khan or Alexander the Great can, you know, we don't want to know what, you know, an unsuspecting human that one day turns into a full-blooded immortal will, will do to this world. And, and Curapon, she like. It takes it upon herself to, they, you know, to stop the eighth immortals, and she also shows the ability um, in to give make people immortal. It looks like as well. I guess in issue three it was that Ooh, spoiler. She, this is called spoiler country. So <laughs> yeah. So my question is, I'm trying to have the best way to phrase it. By whose authority can it should she be doing that? Is there something then? Does it does it argue that there's something higher than her that has given her authority? Is she given the authority to herself? 
and she's the one who has given herself the authority. Is it, you know, say, is that kind of a bit too much responsibility to have determined for herself to go ahead and do? Well, that's kind of the, that's kind of the, you're hitting upon the whole, her whole plight here. And the whole point of it is that she was given this, this decree from the beginning of her mortal life, you know, never can the Romanate the mortal. And when, you know, when, <laughs> when you come in contact with, you know, the, the, you know, literally mother earth and mother earth has one fucking thing to tell you, and it's don't let another immortal rise. That's going to stay with you. And, there's there's no more information than that. These she doesn't even know why these rules exist. She just it's just all that she knows, and she so she's locked into this cycle. And so you say like by whose authority? It's you know essentially by God's authority in a sense, because you know and again is in many respects you know a god a god spirit. But you know after a while, like you're left to question. Well, like you know when if the person who came and gave you all these rules hasn't shown up in 6,000 years, do you still need to listen to them? <laughs> you mm. know, and that's, that's her struggle in, in the book. That's what the story is about is, is her, you know, her own personhood butting up against this, this dictate she's been given. So, and another thing with, about for Curapon, she does state, or at least suggest that time causes kind of a rigid read us to become more rigid in who we are in, in our, in how we behave and how we think. But Curapon is also later in the story does some things or doesn't do some things that definitely demonstrate that she's become less rigid. Is that, does that suggest an internal conflict within her on whether or not to grow or not grow? Yeah. She's working through that. She's, you know, she's got her, her scars and they're deep. But she, but those scars don't align with, with who she once imagined herself to be and who she wants to yet become. And you know, the the story is her breaking through that. And you know, we as the audience get to decide kind of for ourselves whether we really can break through that. Like, is she doing these things? Or are these just further manifestations of this deep wound that has followed her and dogged her her entire life, and are now just, you know? taking on a new form or is she actually rising above and becoming more than she ever could have been by breaking out of these, breaking through these chains. And let's get spelling too, too much. Like the character that, that you're introducing as the eighth immortal is interesting. And so far as it's not seemed quite determined what this character's destiny would, will be because of what we know of the others are we saying that it's inherently likely to go Ari or are we saying it's up to like almost a nurturing of the, of how it's the individuals raised? Did you say Ari like game of Thrones? Oh, oh sorry. Oh, that's, that's, uh, A-W-A-R-Y. I'm sorry. My, my speech can be issues. Oh. A, sorry. A-W-A. So it could go badly. Yeah. I mean. Go awry. Go awry. Sorry. 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 Yeah. yeah get you all right. All right. Sorry. Um, yeah. I just, yeah. No, yeah. that's fine. Zoom is not a perfect medium. Yeah. I mean, it's again, I, it, like, I don't want to give too much away, but that's the, again, that's just what we're dealing with here. Like how, how much do the gods get to tell us what to do <laughs> and how much do their prophecies and their desires, you know, dictate our reality, you know? So yeah, I don't know. I don't know how I'll answer that. Like, I, th- I think, I think we get there and I, I hope we, 
grapple with that in the fourth issue in determining who actually is in control here, you know, and, and who gets to who gets to really decide, like, are these are these prophecies, you know, things foretold? Like, is this a Greek fate, you know, where there's nothing, you know, you've been inscribed into the book of life and, you know, or fate, fate from Sandman and, you know, what's what's going to be is going to be regardless of what you do about it. Or do we have some agency here? And even if we do have agency, again, how much of that is just based on our past? based on our wounds, based on the baggage and the bullshit that we carry with us. You know, it's, it's impossible for the future to not be informed by the past. And like I said, it, it, it's, it's a very, it's a very well-written story. And I mean, there's also obviously a lot of other villains in, in, in the peripheral. How it, it's, it's kind of interesting the way you have the story set up. There's very, there's potentially, I guess three or four potential villains in the, in the, in the series. Am I correct on that? You have general McLeod, you have Sophie, Kirapon may be debatable on, on based on behavior and you have yeah. the eighth immortal. Is, is, is that also giving you a sense of how we define villainy in the story potentially? Yeah. I'm a big fan of ambiguity when it comes to good and evil. I like that the story kind of delineates that you have a, a, a literally a life force and a death force, but that doesn't mean that one's good and one's evil. That's, you know, in, in the second issue, you know, we're talking about this, this, you know, evil spirit. And I described the, the spirit as a cruelty without malice. And what I mean by that is that it, 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 is a, it is an agent of chaos. It is an agent of causing pain, but it's not doing it because it enjoys causing pain. It's just the way it is. It's just necessary for this, for this thing to do this. It's not doing it because it hates you. It's not doing it because it laughs at, you know, it's not schadenfreude. So, you know, I, I, I hope that by the end, you know, people would debate about who's, who's the good guy and who's the villain, because again, like just the same way I was talking about with bringing sex into it, like these things are just realities that as much as we want to pretend like there's heroes and villains out there and we do everything we can to paint the people we want to be villains as villains and insist that, you know, they have no redeeming qualities or that those redeeming qualities aren't worth listening to, or that you're problematic. If you dare talk about the redeeming qualities of someone that you or your in group has decided is wrong or vile. And the same way that not one person you think is a good quote unquote good guy is without his flaws and without his bad intentions or his or her bad intentions. It's just a fact of life. So I don't, I don't tend to write stories that have, you know, a clear ideation of this is, you know, this is dark sea, dark sea is evil and that's Batman. Batman's good. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't deal with that. I don't like it that much. So I don't, I didn't want to put that in the story. So in, in the series, you introduce a character um, named Denise. Is she going to show up later on or is her story complete and how she appears in the first issue? Uh, she was in issue three. Okay. Is she, 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 she's in two panels of issue three. Is she going to be continuing to appear? Or does she have a more significant role in the series? No, no, she doesn't. She was, she was, she's an entry point into it. She's not a, she's not, she's a, she's a red herring of sorts. So how, how is Eighth Immortal designed as a miniseries or an ongoing? Uh, it's designed as a miniseries. It's a four-issue limited series is the, the, the deal we struck with SourcePoint Press. Like I said, originally I had five issues. They, they preferred four, so I amended it to be four. Luckily, their issues are thicker. Like if you haven't bought SourcePoint Press books, one of the cool things about them and most indie publishers is that you get 28 pages, not 22. 
So you're literally getting more story for your money for your $4 when you buy a SourcePoint press book than when you buy a Marvel book or a DC book that are almost all, you know, 22 pages. So yeah, it, it, it's four, it's four issues and it wraps up. I mean, this, this story arc wraps up. If there was demand to do more, or if there is interest to do more, hopefully on you know audiences part, but also just in Alice's and my schedule. Like I have, I have more stories to tell. I have, I have another eight issues minimum that I could that I could do with 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 the Eighth Immortal. Whether we ever get around to doing them or not, you know, depends on a lot of things. But if if that never happens, I think this these four issues will stand as a solid and complete story. Well, like I said, it was a it's a very well done series. Um, like I said, the three first three issues I read were highly entertaining. I think when the third issue comes out, is it this week or is it? But it's soon, right? Yeah, it's this Wednesday, March thirty first. Very cool. Yeah, so I, I recommend to my listeners definitely pick up pick up the story Eighth Immortal. It's definitely worth reading. Great story. The art is um, great as well. And it was a very definitely a pleasure talking to you, Mister Murray. I appreciate it. you too, Jeff. Thank you so much for uh, for having me on for taking your time. No, no worries. Have a fantastic night, and I'll let you know as soon as this goes live. Sounds great, man. All right. Have a very good night. Take care. And we're back. That's right. We are back. Back in the saddle again. Well, <laughs> I hope you guys really, really enjoyed that as much as we did making it for you. And if you like what you heard and you want to hear more, you got to go check out SpoilerVerse.com because at SpoilerVerse.com, we have a plethora. Plethora is such a, it's such a snobbish word. I like it though. <laughs> it's, it's a good word. <laughs> we have an obscene amount of oh, interviews obscene. with amazing directors and artists of all walks of life and editors and writers and Oh my God! Are you a lover of comic books like we are? And then there's so many. so many amazing people from the comic book world over at spoilerverse.com, and I highly implore you to go there and check it out. Yeah, and while you're there, you can check out all the other podcasts on our network, like Bridges and Geekdoms, and Funny Book Forensics, and Haphazard Adventures, and Nerds from the Crypt, and so many more. Misery Point we got Radio episodes all the time. Misery Point Radio has got a ton of great stuff out there. Go check all of them out, and. Check out all of the reviews and previews and articles we have going up every single day for you. Every day on Spoilerverse.com for you to check out, to read, and to love, and to like, and to comment. We have a store link. If you want to help support the site, you can do it two ways. One, go to our Patreon, which is just patreon.com slash country, or go to our store link in the middle of the site there and get a t-shirt, a face mask, a hoodie, something. Look fly as hell and help support the site when you do that because we get a dollar or two. And, you know, maybe you want to talk to us. If you do, you can do it obviously on all the socials. But if you go to scpod.us slash discord, you can join our public discord server and come chat with us all day long. I couldn't say it better myself, dude. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. You just mouthed out a ton of information at once. And really, (laughs) I hope you guys enjoy what you're hearing because we're working our butts off to bring it to you. We are. We are. I guess there's only one left thing. One left thing? Yeah. I'm going to go with it. There's only one left thing left to do. What's that? In an oceans of podcasts, we are Cthulhu. As Cthulhu compels you to do, open the mind. And... <laughs>